Hey, it's Ale. I appreciate you listening to the show. We talk a lot about the one-page strategic plan. It's the fastest, most effective business plan that we've developed for our clients. I'm making the full toolkit available to you for free. You get a video course, workbook, and strategic plan template. Visit lawfirmsuccessgroup.com and click the Get My Business Plan button to get it at no charge. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Lawyer Business Advantage. This podcast is dedicated to helping attorneys earn more money, get better clients, and spend more time with family. I'm your host, Alej Yajnik, founder of Law Firm Success Group. Smart business guidance for small law firms begins in three, two, one. And it's my pleasure to welcome to Lawyer Business Advantage, Tim Kowal, partner and shareholder with Thomas Vogel and Associates. Tim, welcome to the show today. Hi, LA. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. I am very excited to have you on the show as a fellow podcast host. We are going to dig into that together because I don't know a lot of attorneys that actually have their own podcast. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your practice. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm an attorney specializing in appeals. So that means I work typically with other trial attorneys, also directly with clients. But I work with attorneys before, during, and after trials to help them maximize their chances to prevail. And hopefully they won't need to appeal and they'll be defending a good judgment. Otherwise, uh, if they have a, an adverse judgment against them, I can help them with that too and try to get that, the award reduced or reversed and get stays put in place while the client is fending off the judgment during the appeal so they don't have their bank accounts wiped or their wages garnished and things of that nature. I hear this a lot from appellate attorneys. That's the kind of work that they do. But I also hear from trial attorneys that they oftentimes try and do and handle their own appeals. Why can't a trial attorney just handle their own appeals? That's a great question. And frankly, I can talk out of, talk about this from both sides of my mouth because we do a lot of litigation in our firm. I spend about half of my time in the trial court itself. So I do handle some of the appeals in the cases that that I've taken to trial. But I also encourage counsel, uh, trial counsel to get an independent set of eyes on their case. And in fact, I try to do that myself when I handle uh, appeals of my own cases. I like to say that nobody knows a case like a trial attorney, but here's the rub, no one ever will. And that includes the court of appeal. So you've seen as a trial attorney, you've seen the case front row, from the front row seat, you've seen you know, every bead of sweat on the witness's brow, you've seen every roll of the jury's eyes, you've seen you know, every sideways glance by the trial judge and gotten a sense of a lot of the intangibles that will never appear on an appellate record by sitting front row at the trial court. And you may have a sense of you know, when the, you know, really when the tables have turned during the trial, and those might be based on a lot of intangibles that are going to be very difficult to relate to a court of appeal when you're on appeal and dealing with the cold, dead record. So there's a process of adaptation that needs to happen. And sometimes that means uh, taking another look at the case and trying it from a, from a, a slightly different theory or maybe a, a completely different theory than the one that was tried at the trial court. And, and that might not be because the trial theory was not a good one. It just means that it might need a different kind of telling because you have a completely different forum. I mean, sometimes the, the medium defines the message. You may have a good message, but you have to adapt it to very different mediums. And the, and the trial court and the court of appeal can hardly be different mediums. Got it. Got it. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I love the idea that you mentioned about trial attorneys, just having someone else take another look at it who doesn't have all of the history and is just looking at it exactly as you know, the appellate uh, court would look at it. What are some of the things that, that happened then after that? So let's say that uh, there is maybe a different way of handling things. 
Do you typically uh, handle that on your own or do you co-counsel with a trial attorney? How does that play out? Are you talking about when after the, after the trial and maybe after a judgment, but before the appeal actually gets underway? Yes. Yeah. At that point, there, there are a lot of deadlines that come really fast and furious and trial counsel and the client need to be prepared for those like new trial motions, motions for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, sometimes a motion to vacate and whether you file a motion to vacate or a motion for new trial is a, is full of kind of tactical portent because you know, that, that can be a very good decision to discussion to have with an appellate attorney. But Sometimes I, I, I have seen, I have a lot of respect for trial attorneys because our firm does a lot of trial work and, I've, and I support a lot of trial attorneys, but I have seen some trial attorneys who kind of mentally um, or even physically check out after uh, the trial is done and they don't want to have anything to do with what happens after the trial. And that can leave the client at a, at a very severe disadvantage. So it's very important to be thinking, thinking ahead of what, you know, ahead of time, what happens and what's going to happen after the judgment's entered. And am I, am I prepared for that? And is my trial attorney prepared for that? Let's face it, going through trial is a tremendous resource hog. I mean, uh, I've been through trial and after you're done with it, you, you're ready for a vacation. You want to go sit on a beach and take in a few cocktails and not think about that case for a long time. But the reality is sometimes you really do have to get thrown right back into it. And so that can be a good time, a good reason to have another set of hands at your disposal. And that's a, it's a good reason to have embedded appellate counsel at the ready. Absolutely. And how do clients typically feel? They've gone through this trial with an attorney and now as they get, as they understand that there's an appeal being done or they're initiating whatever it happens to be, now an appellate attorney is coming into the mix. How does that typically work? Oh yeah. They feel like they've been through the whipsaw. I mean, they've, they've gone through the gauntlet already. They've paid out the nose for trial counsel and then there's a negative judgment and it's, it's flawed. They believe that it's susceptible to being overturned or at least reduced on appeal but now they're looking at having to hire a whole new attorney and have them get up to speed in the case. So yeah, it, it, it is really psychologically taxing to be at the, at the wrong end of a judgment. And so I, tell, you know, I have to tell clients that at the moment the judgment is entered against you, that is, I mean, it's certainly the lowest point psychologically and as far as leverage is concerned, but there are some ways to start building back your leverage in fairly short order. If you do have some, if you can identify some susceptibilities of the judgment that can be reversed on appeal or reduced on a new trial motion. That's all the more reason to, to retain appellate counsel, try to get uh, that new trial motion on file and preview some of the weaknesses of the judgment for the other side. And then if you can get a stay of enforcement of the judgment and signal to the other side, look, you may, have, uh, you may be flying high because you just got a great judgment, but you are not going to be able to see a dime of that for you know, the next 18 months and more likely two years plus while this appeal is pending because we got a, a bond and a stay in place. So you might as well, and, and take a look at the issues we previewed in our new trial motion. And uh, that should give you an idea that you are susceptible to having your judgment reversed on appeal. So why don't we talk about settlement? And that can be a good way to restore some leverage in fairly short order, after, even after a negative judgment. So there's something that you put here in the, in the, in the pre-podcast questionnaire, and I'm not quite sure what you meant by it, but since we're talking about clients, it seems like it'd be a good time to bring it up. And I'm just going to read it out here and let me know what you meant and please expound on it. So the question that I asked Tim prior to our episode for you attorney entrepreneurs is what would you like to share with our listeners? And, and here's Tim's response. Clients don't want to know how much time you spent. They want to know you care about their case. Tim, what did you mean by that? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I may have heard that some uh, sometime recently before I filled out that questionnaire, and it was something that convicted me because you know a lot of times you 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 know that's what you do in in a in a bill. I mean, uh, attorneys all day long. That's all they're doing is they're billing hours and they're writing down what they did during that time, and also when you are consulting with new potential clients and they're asking you you know what to expect and you start telling them, well, you know, I estimate the the appeal is going to cost this much. It's going to take me this many, this many hours to do, you know, and, and all that's important, but they really want to know that this isn't just another job to you. This isn't just a billing opportunity for you. They want to know that you have, you see something in their case. Hopefully you're not just a, just a door attorney, just a, an attorney who takes any case that walks in the door. Hopefully they get the sense from you, from you that, that you are successful enough that you can be a little bit selective and that you've chosen their case because you see something in it. You see either the, the client has some integrity hopefully that and that the case you know has some real merit that the judge made a mistake that there's still there's some justice that needs to be done and that you feel you know that that you feel you have an opportunity as the attorney to do that justice for the client and if the if the client feels that you see the case that way and you want to play a role in in helping get the justice for them then you know I think that's going to be more important to them than just the green eye shades analysis of how much is it going to cost that is a really interesting twist on something that I, I share with, with clients and potential clients a lot. And you've probably heard this before too, Tim. The phrase is, clients don't... Oh my gosh, now I've got to figure this out here. <laughs> oh, they don't, they don't <laughs> no, care no, how much no you know. What you know yeah. until they know how much you care, right? Right. Right? No, yeah. one knows, no one cares what you know until they know what you care. That's um, it. And I think this is a really good twist on that. And it injects a lot of context into that as well about the meaning of the case. And I love the comment about not being a door attorney as defined as, you know, any case that comes in through the door. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, I heard that only recently. And then the, the attorney, I, I had to ask what that meant. And, uh, and the attorney looked at me kind of sideways and said, I can't believe you never heard that before. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny how there, there are certain expressions in our lexicon that, that some people just, you know, they, they say like, it's just the air we breathe and other people have never heard of it before. Right. Right. And so I, I need to ask you because, you know, one of the things we talk about since we're talking about clients and, and, you know, cases resonating with the attorney and, and the meaning that goes into all of that, clients choose to work with their attorneys for a specific set of reasons. They don't make that choice at random. And so what are some of the things that separates you, not necessarily better, but different separates you from other quality appellate attorneys? I would say that I have met a lot of great appellate attorneys and I would take nothing away from them, but I have seen that a lot of appellate attorneys specialize so heavily in appeals that they don't do any trial work. Some of them have even told me that they don't set foot in, inside the trial courtroom. And, and I can appreciate that, that certainly appellate law is a separate approved specialty of law that's, that's certified by the California State Bar. So you can certainly specialize in that and, and never set foot in the trial courtroom and still you know, have a very, a very full appellate practice and always be learning new things. But with that said, I, would th I think that I would have a hard time doing, giving as much value to my clients if I, if I were not representing them also in the trial court. I mentioned earlier that, that I do a lot of work in post-trial motions right after a judgment's been entered. And one of those types of motions is getting a stay of, stay of enforcement of the judgment during the appeal. And so many appellate, uh, appellate clients who, who come to me who want to challenge a judgment, I mean, they, uh, certainly they want to talk about reversing the judgment, but before they can even 
allow themselves to imagine what it would be like to to go up on appeal and and how the the court of appeal judge justices might take their arguments. The first thing that they're thinking of is, am I going to lose my house? Are they going to come sweep my bank accounts? Sure. What's going to happen when they, yeah. you know, can they sit me down for a judgment debtor examination? Because a lot of people have, you know, if you just start Googling that, you can hear about how you show up at those and they can make you take off your watch and empty your pockets, empty your wallet and give them anything you have. Don't, don't drive a nice car. They can get you to turn over the, the deed to your car. It's a, it's a very scary procedure. So they want to talk about a lot of those realities and can I get a stay of enforcement of the judgment? And if you're, if you're an attorney who, who never practices in the trial court, you're not going to be able to answer those questions. And, and th- that's one of the biggest burning questions on their mind. So I, that's one way I, I set myself apart from other appellate attorneys is I, I do work in the trial court. And that is a powerful differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other ways I think that you separate yourself from the other attorneys is through your marketing. And you and I are are both improvisers, a a national networking organization. And when you and I met, one of the first things that jumped out to me is, oh my gosh, here's an appellate attorney who has their own podcast. Oh my gosh. So Tim, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, thank you. The It's called the California Appellate Law Podcast. And it was a pandemic project uh, of a colleague of mine. He invited me to start it with him. His name's Jeff Lewis. He's a fabulous appellate attorney, not as good as me, of course, <laughs> and, and, a, uh, and a First Amendment attorney does a lot of anti-slap work. And in fact, when I have cases uh, that have anti-slap issues, I, I hire Jeff. There's no one better than him. And uh, so this was an idea that Jeff came up with. I think he may have heard it from a, a business coach or something because I, I think it's a uh, devilishly good and simple idea. And I, I'm reluctant to share how easy it is to start a podcast, but you know, just between you and me, LA, it, it, was, it was very easy to start. I mean, we just recorded on Zoom. Uh, I think I bought a, a microphone that cost about $30 on Amazon that was uh, reported to be as good as the $200 ones. And I can't tell the sound difference between these things anyway. And then the podcast host is about 15 bucks a month. And after I spent the, the biggest resource hog of the thing was editing it. And I, I would spend about two and a half hours after each episode personally editing the podcast and you know, all the awkward silences and ums and ahs and things until I decided, gosh, this, uh, this is not worth it. And I, I hired a, a virtual assistant to do it for me. And, so, and since then, it's been pretty smooth sailing. And it's been great. I get a lot of, a lot of people contacting me saying that I listen to the podcast. It's, uh, it's, my biggest referral partner are other trial attor- attorneys. So the audience for my podcast is other trial attorneys. And I try to develop, Jeff and I try to develop content that is, that is going to be interesting and useful to other trial attorneys. So there's a lot there that, that you're doing right, Tim. First off, when you got started, you, didn't, you did not invest a ton of money into this project, right? Just to kind of see how it would go. And then when you realized you were going to stick with it, and it's probably not worth your two hours anymore to be editing. So you outsourced it to a VA, a virtual assistant, uh, which is a great idea. And what I really liked about, about everything is what you said there at the end, which is that your target for this podcast is trial attorneys. And so your content is targeted towards your audience. And it sounds like a, a very intuitive thing to say, but it's surprising how hard it is to do. <laughs> And so, Tim, you're getting feedback that people are listening to the podcast. And one of the ways, one of the reasons you did that was to raise your visibility amongst trial attorneys. What are what were some of the other reasons why you two decided that, yep, you know what? It sounds like a good idea to, to, to start this podcast. And now that we're a year in, we're actually going to stick with it. 
Yeah, you, you know, I, I've only found more reasons to continue doing it after we started doing it. But one of the reasons that kind of came up afterward was when I started doing the podcast, I, I think I also started around the same time I started developing uh, more content for my for my blog that I post on our firm's website. And so every day I would just trawl the recent California appellate decisions and try to find cases that had some kind of interesting appellate procedural issue that might surprise trial lawyers and be of interest to trial lawyers. And so I'd write a little bit about those. And then I would, I would start recycling some of the more interesting ones and talk about them on the podcast. And so, be, so by kind of doubling up on those two fronts of my marketing efforts, my creating written content for my blog, I started to recycle that for, the, for my podcast content as well. And then I would take that content and also put it into a newsletter that I send out to my uh, you know, trial attorney subscribers uh, every week. So, you know, so I have, I have the blog, I put it on LinkedIn, I put it on the podcast, I put it on a newsletter. So, so from basically one source, one input of energy in, in writing, you know, researching and writing these recent cases, I'm able to put it out there on multiple different fronts and I get contacts. Some people like to read it in the newsletters. Some people like to read it on LinkedIn. Some people listen to the podcast. And so, you know, w- whichever source they get that information, you know, it's all coming from these mornings that I spend doing some blogging and it's been a great way to increase my visibility and, and my reputation. <laughs> one, one very, very minor, uh, I don't know, maybe just a fun fact on, uh, on Avo, a lot of attorneys probably have a profile on Avo. I didn't have a lot of stuff on my Avo and I think my rating was, I'd been trying to get it to 10 and I couldn't seem to get it up there. It was like at like eight or 8.2 or something. And then suddenly I put on their California Appellate Law podcast co-host. A day or two later, it jumped up to 10. <laughs> so it was, it's just like, it's very self-authenticating. You know, when you create a podcast, I introduce myself at the beginning of every podcast with a joke. I say that, that I am uh, uh, licensed by the California Department of Podcasting. Nice. And I've, had, I've had people write me and say, oh my God, is there really a department of podcasting? <laughs> I'm not in compliance. Can you connect me with your attorney? Yeah. It's, it's kind of my joke about the, the regulation of everything in our society, but, but, I, but I kind of make it, it, people do think that having a podcast is something, is some sort of achievement. But, you know, as I mentioned, it's, it's so easy to do. It's almost like writing an email. The barrier to entry is really, really low on a podcast. And also that means that there's a lot of really crappy podcasts that are out there. The other, the other issue is that while it's easy to start, it's not easy to sustain. And so, Tim, as you're thinking back over your podcast journey, what were some of the, you know, if you had to do things differently, what would you have done differently? And well, let's just leave it at that for now. The thing I would do differently, probably earlier on, I would have delegated the editing to a virtual assistant. I think I wanted to maintain some control at the beginning just because I it's a little bit of a nerve-wracking undertaking because you're you're doing something new by recording your voice and sometimes these are just off the cuff comments and uh, you don't know how they're going to come across and so you want to you want to hear it you want to edit out all the embarrassing things you might have said and I think uh you know maybe do that as, uh, until you have a comfort level with it but I think probably sooner uh, rather than later get away from doing that because that does become a barrier if you if you start if you build in an extra 2 3 or more hours editing your podcast episodes before you release them you're going to very quickly get you're going to you know you're going to stop doing it by attrition just because it's you're you're self imposing a barrier to continuing to do the podcast so get the editing you either Either just uh, don't edit it at all or, or get a virtual assistant to just, just do some basic light editing. And then the other thing I would do differently is at the beginning, I, I scripted out just about every word of the episodes that I would do because I wanted to, 
doing an appellate law episode, it's either going to be met with with snores. You know, I, I would say <laughs> that, that I would hope attorneys are are all curled up in their bed and ready to go to sleep because I'll send them to count it, to sawing logs any moment now talking about appellate standards of review. Uh, it's not the most the most exciting content. To the extent people were not falling asleep hearing about appellate law, there's there's you know these these are very technical procedural things that I was going to be talking about. And I didn't want to get anything wrong. So I made sure I had everything scripted out. After a while, I, I think I learned that people are not going to be tuning in to get the rudder guide on podcast version. You know, they they want they just want different perspectives. They want to you know they want to hear personalities of of our guests and and their perspectives on appellate law. Not a lot, you know, maybe a few nuts and bolts here and there, but not inundate them with uh, a lot of nuts and bolts. It doesn't have to be dense content. You just have to be be personable and and hopefully offer them just one or two useful bits of content in each episode so that they can walk away and say, yeah, I got something out of this. I think I'll tune in next time. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. You mentioned guests and and you do this with a colleague. So how have you found that just the two of you doing an episode versus, versus including a guest or two? Oh, that's the other thing I would do sooner is I would bring in guests just as soon as possible. Uh, Maybe do the first couple of episodes without a guest, just so that your listeners get a sense of who you are. But I think very quickly try to bring in some guests because that really not only uh, advances the conversation because you just bring in more voices and more perspectives, but you also bring in their, their audience. They're going to start sharing the podcast and you're going to get start multiplying your audience because it's not going to be the same people just tuning in to hear, to hear me every episode or to hear you every episode. But you know, our guests, our respective guests are going to have their own audience who's going to want to you know, hear what they had to say on this other podcast and vice versa. And Tim, I can almost hear, the, well, I can hear this voice in the back of my head that is an attorney that is saying, okay, great. I get it. The podcast is easy to do and it's fun and it doesn't take a lot of time or effort or energy. Wonderful. And it's good marketing. Great. But everyone's doing a podcast these days. I don't want to just do one more podcast. It's getting saturated. What's your perspective on that, Tim? Yeah, I, I don't know that I do see that many podcasts. I mean, there are there certainly are more than there used to be. But if there's an area of law that you practice in that really that really gets your motor going, I mean, that was that, that's something for me. Two years ago, you know, I would do. I guess it was more than that, but I it was probably two years ago. I decided that I that I really wanted to to focus on my appellate practice and build it out, and that really changed me from being uh, just one of those attorneys who was uh, decent what he did. But I would look at, at those attorneys who really loved what they did. And think I, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys. But but after really finding uh, appellate law and building out that area of my practice, I have become one of those people that I'm really excited about what I do. And I think there's not a lot of people, uh, a lot, not a lot of attorneys who really are excited about their practice area. And listeners, I think, can hear that. And again, I don't think they're tuning in just to get you know the latest updates to the code of civil procedure. They're here to hear somebody who is really good at what they do, really enjoys what they do and wants to share stories, you know, swaps, you know, war stories about what they've done and talk with other people who are passionate about what they do. That's what makes for fun, a fun podcast, I think. And, you know, if there are a lot of them out there, then great. But if there are a lot of podcasts out there, who are just people uh, trying to, you know, just build another, another wing on their marketing portfolio. I, I think they probably won't attract very many listeners. Yeah, I agree, Tim. I think the authenticity comes through very quickly on a podcast. So as I said, it's easier to start, it's easy to start, but not easy to sustain. And the ones who really like it are going to stick with it. And the number of quality podcasts like yours 
are actually really kind of few and far between, especially on deep topics. So the other thing you've done is focusing it on, on an audience of trial lawyers talking about appellate law. The, the more narrow, and the, for those of you attorney entrepreneurs, if you're listening to this and you want to start a podcast, please please listen into this part specifically. The narrower you can focus your podcast on a specific you know, issue or subset of issues, make it really, really granular and go really, really deep, you will find an audience for that. And that audience is going to be receptive and they're going to be engaged. And so the more niche the topic, in fact, oftentimes the more passionate the audience is going to be about it. So yeah, totally agree, Tim, with, with all your comments. And the other thing you mentioned that you do very well is that you repurpose content. So you take a topic that you talk about on your podcast and move it to your blog and you take stuff from your blog and put it on your podcast. Then you do postings on LinkedIn. Tell me about how you came upon this idea of repurposing your content in this way, because most attorneys actually don't do that. Yeah. And I'm surprised uh, that they don't do that, but I, I found that Probably the bedrock of my my own marketing efforts is is that I just really enjoy researching cases and writing about cases, and that's something that I it takes a lot of work, but I because I enjoy it, I can sustain that. So I figure you know there's a lot of things that I am that are not in my wheelhouse, like like doing videos was something that I wanted to do, but I that's not in my wheelhouse. That's not something that I that I wake up early in the morning <laughs> because I'm excited to do. So I was kind of agonizing over how am I going to get some video content up? You know, who wants to listen to a, you know, to an appellate attorney, you know, be a talking head on a on a YouTube video. <laughs> After a while I got the idea, why don't I just go back to my repurposing idea? You know, I, I'm already repurposing the cases that I write about in the morning on LinkedIn by posting to my blog and posting to a newsletter and then talking about on my podcast. Why don't I also take some of the the more interesting clips from my podcast? Because we when we record it, we also record the video, and I'll just turn that into a you know a, a video clip that's somewhere between two and five minutes long, and I'll post that on you know I upload it to YouTube and then post it on LinkedIn and Facebook, and whoever wants to you know whoever might might be intrigued by the subject matter can can tune in, and sometimes we get some good discussions going in the comments of LinkedIn. But it's very easy to, to repurpose. You just have to find something you enjoy doing and you can turn that into uh, a lot of different forms of content. And you know, because some people are on LinkedIn and they don't do anything else. Some people are on Facebook. Some people just want to uh, watch clips and, and don't want to read long form articles. So find a way to reach all those people wherever they are with your content. Yeah. And if you repurpose it, it, it significantly reduces the time that it takes to hit all those different channels. And Tim, by the way, if people want to check out a video or two, what's the YouTube channel that you have? Oh, that's a good question. I'll have to I'll have to give that to you so you can post it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, get it back to me. We'll get it in the show notes so people. Yeah, can but check I think it if out. you if you're on YouTube and just type in Tim Kowal, appellate attorney, I'll show up. Awesome, awesome. And then once again, what what is the name of your podcast? The podcast is called the California Appellate Law Podcast. The website is calpodcast c a l podcast dot com. Got it. Got it. Great. Uh, so, Tim, as we're wrapping up here, what really excites you about the future of Thomas Vogel and Associates and your podcast and your blog and your appellate practice? Well, I think because of the uh, you know, these multiple legs of my marketing school, uh, stool, I've been able to bring in uh, some more referrals, some more uh, appellate business. And so it's allowed me to be a little bit more selective about the cases that I take. So I'm, you know, I can be a little bit more excited about some of the cases that I'm taking. And we might be in a place to bring on another associate, another another paralegal, probably, because we certainly overwork our paralegal, especially now that we've 
you know, I've added a, an appellate practice in the last few years, and she's already she's already supporting four busy litigation attorneys. So I think it's a little much to to put on her. But so that's yeah, that's what excites me is 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 building uh, building out the firm, and I've, I've been doing a lot to to kind of build my practice. But now I need to kind of build the systems and and staff in my firm. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. You know, one of the things that that I deal with pretty routinely, and you attorney entrepreneurs, we've talked about this before, is not waiting too long to build in those systems and to staff up appropriately. That way you've got the time that it takes that it's going to command to search for the right people, put in the right systems, train up the team and get them all going. So I'm glad to hear that that you're working on those things now versus later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, you you want to you want to have some place some place to put those clients when you bring them in because if you're if you're reinventing the wheel every time you get a client, you're not going to be able to take on very many clients. Exactly, exactly. And if there is an attorney or a paralegal or just someone who's interested in your podcast or some of the work that you do and they want to contact you, Tim, what's the best way for them to do that? Email is a great way to contact me. I'm, uh, I always welcome your emails. It's uh, tkowal uh, at tvalaw.com. You can contact me via the, the website that has all the resources that I, that I publish every morning and has a link to, our, to the podcast and to, our, to my newsletter. It's tvalaw.com. It stands for Thomas Vogel Associates Law.com. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate you joining us today and being a guest on the Lawyer Business Advantage podcast. It was great insights about how an attorney can create their own podcast, create a bunch of really good content marketing, and also some really fascinating insights about the practice of appellate law. Because I think you're the first appellate uh, attorney I've had on the show, in addition to being the first podcaster. So um, really excited, Tim. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Alay. I really enjoy your podcast. You've got great content. And I'm glad to be a part of it. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Lawyer Business Advantage podcast. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in to listen. And I want to hear from you. So connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you think of this episode. And if you are a solo or an owner of a small law firm, and you're looking to earn more money, attract better clients, or reduce your stress, we would love to talk with you to see how we can help. Request your free law firm assessment by visiting lawfirmsuccessgroup.com. Again, that URL is lawfirmsuccessgroup.com. We look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you for listening. My name is Ale Yajnik. Until next time, remember, you can seize freedom. You can embrace happiness. You can build your perfect practice.